Hello everyone and welcome to the next edition of the VTX podcast. Here at the Veterinary Thought Exchange we start by asking what are you thinking and this week we are going to be chatting with the amazing Heidi and Liv um, who are vet students. Now this is the first time that we've had vet students on the podcast which I feel a bit shameful about saying but we're so excited to have them chatting with us today and talking about some some really challenging interesting topics um, around their experiences at vet school but also their experiences with some of the challenges in life generally um, with a particular focus on um, bereavement uh, and how that has shaped their veterinary journey so really excited to chat to them today in our clinical segment, we continue a conversation uh, with the amazing Gemma from Protexin uh, about the treatment of liver disease in dogs and cats. So I do hope you can join us for that as well. Welcome to our episode today. I'm really excited, I think, uh, for a number of reasons. We haven't recorded in a little while, but I think even more exciting, we're joined today by two vet students, which we've never in the 50 for I think 54 episodes we've never had any vet students on which is actually probably quite shameful I feel ashamed that that has has not happened before now but we're we're very lucky to be joined um by Heidi and Olivia today so um I wonder Heidi can you just start by just introducing yourself to the listeners just a little bit about about you and I suppose um I mean, obviously you have a vet school connection <laughs> or yeah. else it may be, may be quite <laughs> random. Um, so just just tell us a little bit about you, if that's OK. Yeah, so I'm going to be going into my third year at Liverpool Vet School in September. Um, I'm 24, so a mature student, although I don't look like it, which is great. <laughs> <laughs> God, I I love it. so if you are twenty four and mature, then yeah. I I probably I'm in a some sort of geriatric category. <laughs> yes, good, okay, fine, keep going. <laughs> um, so I took a few years out prior to going to vet school to work full time on a farm. So that is a message that I'm quite strong about gaining life experience, having my own journey, and being empowered by that instead of society's rationing. Um, I am mad for CrossFit. I don't think a CrossFitter can ever introduce themselves without saying that they do CrossFit. Fitness yeah. is a massive part of my life, my journey with vet school, all of that, mm. mental health, everything. I have pet goats. Mm. I've got a tattoo of a goat. I really like goats. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and okay. the reason that this podcast is so special is because Liv and I, we knew each other in first year but I'd say second year is when our friendship really grew um because we both sadly have lost a parent and being able to share that with somebody in vet school and it is already a really stressful time and experience um yeah Liv I'm just so grateful for everything you've done for me oh I love that yeah so there's obviously and and so yeah so it's amazing that we've got you know two people on and actually there's clearly a a really special connection between the two of you, which is a, a, another great part of this whole discussion, really. So, um, Olivia, do, will I call you Liv? Is that is that what people kind of... Uh, yeah. Is yeah, Liv, Liv, Liv. Yeah. yeah. Is Olivia like what your mum calls you or your parents call you? Yeah, that sort yeah. of thing. Yeah. That's, that's when that's, I'm in trouble. Yeah. Okay. So let's avoid... <laughs> let's call you Liv then. Um, yeah. <laughs> so do you want to just uh, tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah. So... Um, 
I'm obviously in the same year as uh, Heidi at the University of Liverpool, going into our third year. Um, I, like Heidi, have had a bit of a different journey to vet school. Um, I would, well, I wanted to go when I was 18, and I was unfortunately quite poorly with endometriosis, so I didn't go. Um, but I had this amazing opportunity to do my nurse training. So I qualified as an RVN. Oh, right. Yeah, in 2019. Um, and it was just the best job in the world. And I do, I miss it a lot. Um, but I've uh, powered through and I'm obviously chasing the dream to be a veterinary surgeon. Mm. Um, and yeah, obviously had a bit of a rocky start to vet school like Heidi. Um, so yeah, I'm excited to chat with everybody today. Cool. And share my journey. That's super interesting. So um, you are you then officially geriatric if you've done other qualifications? <laughs> Yeah, I think I would also class myself as mature. Mature. <laughs> I love this. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm uh, the same age as Heidi, so we're both, uh, yeah, both 24. I tell, I'd, let me share with you. So we, I went to Edinburgh Vet School and um, we were kind of, when I went to vet school, there was just that the kind of, the mature students were kind of starting to become a real thing. You know, they, they, you know, a lot of people were coming and doing sort of shorter degrees, you know, when they'd done other degrees and things. And I was not mature. I was, I was 17 when I started vet school, like that, like 17, like just not even turned 18 yet. And we used to all sit at the back and just be hung over. And then all the mature students used to sit at the front and pay attention. <laughs> and that was literally... That was literally how the lecture theatre was divided back in my day. But anyway, I did. I, I promise I have paid attention since um, since then. So tell me. So then. So that's both really interesting things there. So so you and again, Heidi, as you kind of t sort of mentioned, really important to highlight that everyone has a different path. Right. And 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 that's OK. And we, we can do. There was one thing that you touched on that I thought was really interesting, this idea that we don't have to do the next thing, then the next thing, then the next thing, then the next thing. And this is something that I actually um, speak about quite a lot that we have a, I don't know if you've noticed already, but there's a very linear pathway through the veterinary profession. I don't know if, if that's something that you've kind of, you know, become aware of at this stage, but I felt that, you know, particularly as I progressed through my career and actually in some ways I find that quite debilitating because I sometimes I don't think you have to be linear is that so tell me about that then when you mentioned that what do you mean by that that it doesn't have to be the next thing then the next thing then the next thing um so I think even from up to GCSEs I went to a selective grammar school it's very stressful it was the whole narrative of a stars want to go to Oxbridge I didn't want to be a vet at that point um, I very sadly lost a very close friend when we just finished our GCSEs and it really rocked my world. I couldn't face going to that sixth form anymore. And I actually ended up volunteering on a farm with goats, which is a point I decided I'd like to be a vet because the farmer said, have you ever considered being a vet? And I said no, because I thought I hadn't come out of the womb saying I want to be a vet, with all of this experience. Um, and I don't know why, but that was a massive turning point of taking ownership of my own journey and seeing all the positives from going off the track because my education had been so rigid and so very detrimental. Um, I still experience a lot of uh, the impact of going to such a high intensity school that I don't think really valued extracurriculums or personality and I've always been very headstrong and determined and 
I just don't like to tick boxes that I don't understand why to tick and I won't. And I think that's a massive quality of my personality. But in certain systems, it's it's not. It's, yeah. Um, so I've always been kind of a leader. Um, I only did A-levels for the first time when I was 20 because I it was a very turbulent time in my life. And when I eventually got my results, I then applied to vet school. So when I got my offer, it was unconditional. I think I was one of the last years of doing A-levels before there weren't any exams. And it was amazing to say, I'm not waiting on results to then get an offer. I took it my own way and made it my own journey. And I knew that as soon as I got the offer from the vet school that I wanted to go to, I could literally press decline on every other single vet, like vet school on my UCAS. And I knew where I was going. Um, then when lockdown happened, I actually deferred my entry because I did have an unconditional. It meant that March that year, prior to other people getting results for that September intake, I could email and say, can I just work full time on the farm for another year? Um, and yeah, I've met incredible people, had amazing opportunities, being able to spend a lot more time in CrossFit and seeing how that really benefits my future in veterinary a lot mm. more than being on this race to to get to the end yeah for me that's a really powerful message because i think that actually and i can tell you almost 20 years down the line that there's no there's no race and there's actually no there's no end point like it just keeps going <laughs> so i think like i don't know what we're i can tell you that i, I mean i certainly haven't found the end and i don't know yeah. that i'm I certainly I'm not racing anymore. So, you know, like I, I can I can reassure you that that's the right strategy for sure. Um, and and live then for you, you know, you've kind of taken this, let's say unconventional, but I feel that's an unfair representation of what you've done, but a slightly different from the normal, whatever the hell normal is kind of route. Do you feel, do you, um, do you feel that's been beneficial doing it different, you know, d doing it in a slightly different way? Do you feel that that's been actually helpful to you rather than being a hindrance on this kind of linear pathway that we're all getting away from, hopefully? Yeah, absolutely. I think at the time it didn't feel good when I was 18. I couldn't go to university. It was the end of the world. Um, but yeah, looking back, I think I would have been a terrible student at 18. I don't think I would have done very well. Um, so I'm really grateful now for all the experiences that I've had. And I think I'm able to sort of draw out of vet school the good bits and focus on what I hope will be important to me in the future. Um, but I agree with you. The chasing thing is, obviously, while I was doing my nursing, it was always in the back of my head. You know, I wanted to go back to university, go and do my veterinary. And then sort of while I was sat on the vet course, I'm a bit like, hmm, what, 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 this is it. What can I do now? Um, and I'll always remember, like, when I was working before I started the vet degree I was like I just want to be a really good GP vet that was my main thing I was like I'm going to do my five years and I'm going to come back and I'm just going to be a good GP vet and that's important and I feel like the the sort of culture at universities and I've, I think I've slipped into it I think I've completely fallen for it um is this all oh, what what can I do or oh, let's intercalate let's do a master's or oh, I need to do this I need to do that and sometimes I even yesterday, I was like, I had a sort of moment with myself and I was like, just ground yourself, Viv. What you actually want to do is just be a good GP vet. Um, and it's, I don't, I don't think I get that grounding moment very often. And I had it yesterday. I was doing an open shift um, and I had a, a, it was a difficult day, but I enjoy, I always enjoy being in practice. 
And yesterday was one of those days where I thought, oh, Liv, stop looking at ridiculous internships on the other side of the planet. You, you this all you want is to be a good GPS. <laughs> And and I think one hundred percent. And I think you know. And and you know, I I've and again I've experienced that. You know, so I I am a you know I I did specialize and do all those things. But equally, I I look at friends of mine who are still very good GP vets, and and they underestimate the power that they have in doing that job, which is a very very important, very very impactful job. And they often say to me, "But I'm you know a, a colleague of mine. I'm but I'm just uh you know I just do a well. You don't just do anything. You do many more things than I would be capable of doing on a daily. I you know, I I know a lot about some very specific things, but they are you know the 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 things that they can do, the knowledge that they have being in general practice is incredible and that should never be underestimated but we do that to ourselves society Heidi tells us that we have to be educated in a certain way right and then vet school tells us that we have to be educated in this other way you know I look at my own children and I think is is this education really right for them you know with the potential for kind of neurodiversity and all this kind of stuff is that really am I making the right decision on their behalf sending them to this kind of conventional uh educational structure and I'm not sure that I always think I am you know I mean like I do struggle with that and I don't think but society kind of makes us (laughs) and then the vet world makes us do these other things you know there is this external pressure which is kind of difficult to control so Heidi tell me um so tell me about how you two met each other is tell me about how that relationship kind of started and how we ended up uh, well, not how we ended up here today. I mean, that's a bit philosophical, but let's talk about why we're, why are you here together today? So we'd met early on in first year. So we were aware of each other. And I think amongst the mature students, um, you do come together. And I'd say that your whole seating plan of your experience at vet school remains. We are front row. <laughs> <laughs> I guessed it. I guessed it. Yeah. Okay. I'll give you front row. I was never front row, but okay. On you go. Uh, (laughs) And I don't actually know when, I don't know what happened. I don't know if we messaged each other a bit more. I think for both of us, vet school has been a bit of a blur. So trying to recall any kind of timeline is quite difficult because it's just, it's mad. As you all know, it's kind of always ongoing. Um, yeah, and I, I think we started to sit together in lectures, which is a step forward in the friendship. <laughs> but yeah, there's, there's been times where we've both had to walk out of lectures and I guess having the front row at the side, it's kind of easy and, you know, like whispering to each other, like, this is really triggering, it's fine, you can go out or live messaging me saying, I've looked through this lecture and I think you're going to like virology for me, you might find this really difficult. Um, I'll go to the lecture and then we can meet up after and I can tell you what I think you need to know from the learning objectives. And I'm a very stressy person and I don't like to miss things. So Liv is always on hand to say, it's okay, you don't have to go to lectures. And, you know, again, I don't know, I find it quite difficult going back to vet school because to me it's quite like my grammar school experience. I think because you are surrounded by incredibly driven, academically excelling students, but knowing there's a space for everybody, I think that's a message that Liv and I share quite strongly is we all have our unique 
different things and we can all be the most driven person but we're not competing against each other there is it's such a wide profession and I think it's wonderful the amount of different guests you get on for example I'm really good friends with Katie Ford she is a massive inspiration um yeah so I think going back to like our friendship um we just share very similar values values in life and I our losses have brought us together but I think loss aside we do interpret the world quite uniquely um and it is a very deep connection and a very special one um but yeah can I, that- can I ask you can I ask you I'm interested you and I again you don't have to answer if you don't feel comfortable what would what would you know you're saying that you've maybe both experienced things in lectures that you would find uh I hope the right word is triggering yeah. I think you said triggering can, can I ask what what kind of things would you maybe would 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 be uncomfortable for you what why would you feel that maybe you had to leave that space be- because of particular material or something like that or? yeah so I'm quite open with my dad's loss he got covid and he was healthy and it was a month battle of intensive care um induced into a coma on a ventilator for quite a while um and i found that it was quite difficult to then go back to university setting like you know everywhere it is the narrative of what's happened and i think a lot of people can forget that a lot of us have very personal experiences with covid um we were all grieving something whether that's people's education they couldn't do placement or whatever but i found that i'd go into learn about viruses and suddenly the veterinary course became very human medicine epidemiologically based and i gave a lot of feedback saying i understand you're trying to make it relatable for everybody but please remain really sensitive not throwing around human death statistics and quite graphic descriptions of people in intensive care um there have been a few occasions i've just walked out in floods of tears because i didn't even from lecture material because i always pre-read i thought oh you know i can face this it's fine there's just like one reference to it but you can't prove like you don't know what people are going to say or what tangents are going to go on what conversation where they're going to go with lectures sometimes um so i think that's quite that's where I found it difficult. But I think even when it came to respiratory lectures, it, it, it's it's difficult because you never know what's going to trigger you sometimes. Sometimes mm. it can just be an emotive subject about loss. Um, mm. But for me, yeah, that was kind of my experience. I think that's, I mean, I think, but it's so, it's so valuable for you to say, to say this out loud because I think, you know, again, it's, I, I'm sure no one means sort of direct malice or, or or wants to make you feel upset. But I think, isn't it interesting when you listen to your perspective on that, I'm I'm sitting here thinking, I mean, oh God, of course, like, of course that's, you know, and I'm now thinking about things that I say, like, but that's, but then again, there, that's the value in you saying this because I then will take away if nothing else from this I will be you know moving forward if I'm talking about respiratory disease or viruses then maybe I'll I'll be more mindful of that you know in the way that that language is being said or, or whatever and and I think until you've experienced something as horrific as that I think it's interesting with COVID isn't it because we all experienced it didn't we there was there was no way there was no way of avoiding it but 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 your level of experience of that is completely different when you've actually directly lost someone because of that, I mean, yeah, and I, and 
God, it's it's so I think that's very powerful, you know, and 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 just to be really mindful of that and how that kind of makes you um or makes you know makes people feel. Can I just ask then? So you obviously have lost your dad uh, under you know these really challenging circumstances, as you know, death always is. Um, I I, I just maybe share. I don't know if I also lost my dad when I was seventeen. Um, you know, uh, and uh. As I speak to you today, I'm, I realise that probably I've never sort of actually gone back and really, you know, come to terms or, or, or dealt with that. But that's maybe for another day. Um, but I, I suppose I have some shared experience there. Um, what what impact did that loss have on your veterinary career directly, would you say? Um, so it was... A very difficult time because I lost my dad two years ago um, so I didn't go to Freshers Week because it was his funeral but because I'd already deferred my place to vet school and I'd had the experience and I was already packed and ready to go to university and so excited and you know my dad did everything to support me to go to vet school he was my number one cheerleader the person I've always said he's the only person to ever truly understand me um, yeah um i do feel like i am a big legacy of his because we share the same navigation of life and connections in the world and aspirations um so i it was very fresh like literally within a week um so i kind of shrugged off when people said oh how was fresh this week i was like oh it was all right I don't really go out so uh, but they didn't know that i was literally carrying my dad's coffin and I think I did go into kind of work mode. But what I found very difficult was when I did reach out for support, the only offer was, why don't you suspend your studies? Uh, no other student has ever experienced such a massive loss and continued with their studies. And I have a big problem with that because for me, vet school was a constant. I didn't want to be home. My dad had done everything, you know, up to the point where he was in hospital he knew that within a month I was going to vet school he knew I was going to Liverpool that I was going to after deferring actually go and start it and he was absolutely oh so excited for me and you know um but it was never a pressure of my dad wanting me to do this he he wanted me to do whatever I wanted to do and it just ended up being veterinary so yeah it, it put a lot of things into perspective it comes with a lot of frustration I think with the studies and when I don't feel because mm. I'm also autistic so I do things my own way and then going into a system <laughs> where you've got to do things in a certain way and having lost my dad sure. like <laughs> yeah. I just want to go out and achieve all my goals and be me um yeah so long story short I think it destroyed me I lost all my self-belief. I tried to tick boxes and try to be the perfect vet student and excel academically. And it's been a journey of taking that back for what I had already grown, you know, because of my journey to vet school life, I took that back and more um, to be me, to do me. I can balance whatever I like to do with vet school. Some may say you don't have time to go to the gym. You can't have hobbies. You can't have aspirations. And I say, you know what? Life's too short. I didn't think that I would lose my dad 
ever. He, you don't think I just knew he was going to be there at graduation, make it. He always cheered, he always whistled. He was going to make the biggest noise and embarrass me at graduation. Um, yeah. So I, I live every day as much. As I, I, I think that yeah. I mean, I do. You know, again, I, I, I think that one of the biggest challenges that we have within the veterinary education in the UK and I'm sure beyond is the fact that we take a lot of very um people that are not set shapes you know very very diverse bunch of people and we we do in some way you know put them through this kind of shoehorn and and you know and, and vet school can sometimes be really challenging from that perspective because I think we're maybe not catering for that diversity you know as far as um and I'm not talking about kind of you know well there's lots of definitions of diversity but actually maybe that more kind of neurodiversity and 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 people's different approaches just to life you know and and, and that can be a, a I think a real challenge um Liv you um you know again uh, there's a shared experience with Heidi, I think, as far as, you know, this this difficult topic of, of bereavement. I don't know if you could share a little bit of your uh, experience and how that has affected your journey through uh, vet school. I have a, a journey, I hate to say journey. Are we allowed to say yeah. journey? Is that cliche? I think, I think we, we say, say journey. journey? <laughs> um, okay, fine. Yeah, so obviously I, <laughs> I actually hadn't really experienced much any human loss in my family until the January of my first year at vet school. Um, so I lost my I lost my grandma in the January, I lost my granddad in the April, and then I lost my stepdad in July. Um, I didn't actually have a really strong relationship with my grandparents, but obviously other members of my family did. It was very traumatic for them. Uh, but my stepdad, he brought me up. So that, that it was very, very traumatic in the sort of last summer um, and sort of unexpected. And obviously I'd watched Heidi go through her first year of vet school. And you do sort of like, I think I did the preparation. I thought I did the preparation in my head, knowing that he was going to die at some point, but nothing I don't think ever like really could have prepared me to sort of go through that experience. Um, and I honestly, honestly just feel I am a quite a different person, I think what I used to be before I sort of sat with my stepdad and he died it was yeah it was it was very traumatic and I just I I think I just have a really different outtake on life now I'm very I'm like a very relaxed person nothing can really generally speaking nothing really bothers me just I'd like to plod I, know, I think I do have my stressful days but yeah I think me and Heidi differ a little bit in that way she will go to every lecture and I'm like don't you don't worry everything everything will work out it's all fine let me just let me interject. So I've got again. I don't. I mean, you take some of you, you, this is take it or leave advice today. By the way, you don't have to take any of this. But my so the true story is I missed every single one of my endocrinology lectures in vet school. I, I think I would. I must have been. I can't remember what I was. Let's not talk about what I was doing. But um, I am now an internal medicine specialist who runs regularly courses on endocrinology. So I think that. <laughs> The deep irony there is, and I'll be honest about it, I never attended any of those lectures, but so you can't, you can claw it back, Heidi, you can claw it back at later times. <laughs> I know that's probably causing you massive anxiety, thinking, oh my God, oh my God, I can't believe you missed them all. But, and and please do come to my CPD in the future, but <laughs> um, that would be my take on that. But yeah, no, I think, do you think that, 
I mean, you're saying you're kind of quite, and I get that vibe from you, although we're not currently sitting in the same room. Do you think that, that where do you think that kind of comes from? Where, where does that chilled out sort of just, you know, let's just take this uh, one step at a time kind of mentality comes from? I think, I think I was quite, well, yeah, I think I was sort of a relaxed person before, but I think it's the level of sadness and upset that I think I experienced during that time. I don't think I will, I hope I, hope I never experience it ever again. Um, so to me, it felt like nothing, you know, nothing else could really bother me. It doesn't, it doesn't matter. Um, and obviously that's not good, I don't think, for a long period of time. And I think it was quite intense after his death. Um, and obviously, I think over, over the months, you know, you start to feel more and you can have feelings again, that's fine. Um, but yeah, just in my head, I think it really gives you that thing of like life and death. And I think obviously I'd spent, well, I thought I had a lot of experience sort of death in terms of my job, you know, the amount of animals that I've seen put to sleep and the amount of owners that you sort of counsel like through that short period of time and that, you know, when their pet's ending, they're like, whatever. Um, but it was a whole different experience and just completely, to me, it was completely backwards. I actually remember having a chat with one of the nurses at the hospital while he was sort of passing. And obviously they sort of just wait for people to die. And we obviously don't do that. And we put animals to sleep out in the kindness of our heart, really. Um, but it's really, it's really changed. And I think it's also changed what, like things I find important in life, what I value. Um, and I think that, yeah, I, I think it has, I, do, I am just a lot more relaxed than what I used to be. And I don't, I think this is interesting and I don't know if either of you would agree. I think my, my feeling and reaction and coping with death, whether that be human or actually the animals now that I'm treating has changed completely over the last 10 years, right? So I don't think the way that we feel about these things now will be different in the future. And and I think I'm more surprisingly more emotional about animal death than I was when I first graduated. I don't, I, and I, I don't know that I know why that is, but I think it's important to remember, I think that, that it's very dynamic. You know, one day is very different from the the next. The the as you said, Heidi, before, you know, the triggers are going to be different one day to the next. And so it's not it's not a, a process where you do the counseling, deal with the problem, and then that's the end of it. This is this is for the rest of your life, right? The, the, this this event or these events you're talking about, these horrific experiences, will be with you in some way until your last breath, right? Because that and it will affect you differently every day. Heidi, what do you think, apart from, we have to mention again, this this superwoman-like um, thing that you do, this this sort of, um, I love, I, I can't tell you how much I love watching your Instagram because I'm just like, I mean, is this, she's real, right? She's for real. Yep, she's doing it again. So I think that, the, <laughs> so either she's like, you know, I've got these images of you like lifting goats above your head, like dumbbells, you know, is that a thing? Have you done that? I'm sure you must have done. So um, so anyway, if you're not like dealing with the goats down in the farm, you know, doing the amazing CrossFit stuff, I I'm sure that all helps you with your, you know, the processing of grief and, and all that kind of stuff and, and any other sort of, you know, 
you know, mental health challenges. Tell me a little bit about how you coped with some of this. And and apart from, you know, the CrossFit and obviously being out in the in nature with animals and all that kind of stuff, do you feel that you received good support or or do you feel that that was something that maybe could have been better for you particularly from a kind of I suppose being in the the vet world uh, perspective I think personally I had my counseling privately that continued and that was in like just like so needed and it, it was it wasn't as a result of the bereavement um she was there to support me prior to and after for two years so there was that but I found it very challenging within the vet school because there were times where as I think it's very clear to everyone I do go into a I'm gonna do everything I'm gonna work everything is great and I find it very hard to slow down um and I would describe it as crash and burn. So I remember January of first year was an incredibly dark and difficult time for me where I felt I'd on this hamster wheel, but I couldn't keep running with it. And the ways that I had managed, I do kind of place a caveat on the fact that you can't keep running forever, um, literally. <laughs> and um the response initially was to suspend and a lot of conversations about suspension. That was really, really hard because I couldn't then, there were times I think I'd come out of a meeting and then go to phone my dad to be like, what the hell do I do? I don't want to suspend. And then realizing I was really, really alone. Um, and it's friends that got me through a lot because when you've lost someone who was your anchor, you, you do lose a lot of your self-belief and confidence. And I was seeking external validation. I think I wanted people to say, oh, you're excelling, you're doing really well, you can do this, you can fumble a bit through vet school. But then it, it, I know there was never the intentions, but I think saying suspend was, oh, it's because I can't be perfect right now. It's because I don't have 100% to give. I need to go away and the words used were get over your dad's death and then I can come back and then I can be perfect and then I can be a vet and I think it was through a lot of conversations with people who understood me um, prior to vet school and friends in vet school because I'm, I'm so grateful to have formed su such incredible connections with people who really do get it for them to say no you know what it's not about having to be perfect anymore it's you can still train to, like what we're doing is trained to be a vet whilst navigating grief um and I think they have made changes from my experience for example to stop with the emails over Christmas to say have a great time with friends and family it's his family time um yeah I think all I needed was somebody to say, it's normal, it's human, you are physically feeling unwell because that's what grief does to your brain, to your body. It's okay to be kinder, to be slower. It's not, I have very black and white literal thinking um, as part of my autistic experience of life. So I took the suspension as a massive, I'm not good enough right now and I can't carry my grief in vet school, which isn't the case. And it's why 
I want to talk about it. Um, yeah. yeah. And I think just even opening up this discussion about the fact that I think we just need to like, we just need to take the pressure off really early on as far as, you know, this formulaic approach to education. Because I think that the thing is, and I guarantee if you speak to any vet at, at my stage in, in career, they would be like, I mean, what's the stress? Like, what? why are we, why, you know, oh God, there's so much time to do all the things and oh my goodness, you know, like it just, do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, I'm just like, chill out. <laughs> They're you're like, chill out. No, I'm not telling you to chill out. I'm not telling, sorry, that's not you. I'm telling like the world yeah. to chill the hell out because, you know, if you need to, let's not suspend you, but if you need to take this journey that squiggles all over the place but gets you to the same goal and let's do that you know I, I think you know it, it's it's just this understanding that that we are not working in this kind of cookie cutter factory but we are working with lots of very diverse people that need different things you know and I think and that is something that something I think we fall we fall short with that um a lot of the a lot of the time Liv do you think um do you think that grief is hard, right? Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> so, um, but do you think we face unique challenges dealing with that sort of thing as vets, as vet students? Do you think there's there's is because I think grief affects human beings because we're human beings. But do you think there are elements that that make it more challenging because we're veterinary professionals? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I even found, I think with the additional sort of science knowledge of you know that we'll all have um i think dealing with family members and then you know you, you just you have a slightly more knowledge you do you know things going to happen you know every my my stepdad he had, he had heart disease and, some, and i knew what was going on and i knew what they were doing at the hospital and and i think that does make it slightly trickier but then i think if you flip it there's the other side where you potentially can become quite desensitized to to death um i obviously i didn't experience that with my stepdad i don't think um but i yeah i think i think it does complicate it because you're so used to seeing like a dead a body whether that's obviously human or an animal um and i think i, I feel like anyone would lie if they say there's not an element of your, your brain becoming a bit desensitized because you can't like you said you do that half an hour or 40 minute appointment and then you it doesn't affect you for the rest of your life you sort of move on you do the next one the next day or whatever but when it's personal and it's a human it it actually does sit with you forever um yeah that's one thing at university that I really struggled with even before my stepdad died in first year doing the sort of initial um like dissections and things I found it really like powerful and overwhelming and I sort of looked around me and there's all these students that seem not bothered which I found really worried that really I was like how why, why is no one else feeling this sort of upset and so overwhelmed? And that was obviously a lot worse after I lost my stepdad. Um, but yeah, I think, I think it is, I think it is more, I think it does present more challenges. But I think just having, <clears throat> you know, this understanding that, you know, I, like I said, I would, I, I can tell you as an 18 year old, I did not have any problem doing that dissection room stuff. And, but again, it would never have crossed my mind to to be mindful of of that, and until you've just said that, you know, you've said that now, and I'm like, oh god, yeah, you know, I think, and that's what again, 
why these conversations are really important. So because people, the majority of people want to do the right thing, right? You know, the 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 particularly online, we talk about I talk well, we talk about the silent majority. So not all those people that are outspoken, both ends of the spectrum, right or left or whatever. But just the people in the middle who don't comment, but actually they just want to do the right thing. And I, and I think you're often speaking to them, you know, because they want to know the right thing to say and want to be able to to more sensitively deal with colleagues at work and more sensitively deal with, with vet students and all that kind of stuff. So I think just having the conversation, having a better understanding of how other people are feeling is so, in, so important. Um, so Heidi, I think if you, if you could change, maybe this is, I don't know, sometimes I ask these questions, I think it's maybe unfair. So if you could change one thing about your experience, you know, as far as making it better for the next person, having gone through, you know, a similar thing to what you've experienced with, with, um, grief and, and bereavement, what, what one thing would you maybe change to make it better for them? So we've already, I guess, actioned this. Um, Liv, Tobias and I set up the Bereaved Vet Student Group and we've got a little group in Liverpool. It is in its early days, but we've had a few meetups and we had an end of year meal after exams to celebrate and we have our online Facebook group to offer support and we've been able to meet other people from different years with different experiences because we realised a lot of it was kind of visibility and you know you don't I'm very open about my loss and I think because of my online presence people are aware that I lost my dad and but if I hadn't done that how would anybody know who to speak to within the vet school who has a shared experiences and I know grief is so unique but there are as we've discussed the unique challenges of being a vet student going through a bereavement so it was really important for us to have some way of connecting bereaved vet students and even having that safe space and to know that they do exist because it is so isolating especially when that person was a massive support system um really showing people that they're not alone and it's not something to be ashamed about because yeah I think your description of kind of going into vet school as a 17, 18 year old, um, perhaps not having the same life experiences or, and I'm not saying that being younger doesn't mean that you haven't experienced, for example, a loss, but I think we've both had different routes to vet school and we have learned a lot from it and it can disconnect you from the majority of the year, which I think we have experienced. And so I, as a brief student, it can feel very isolating. Um, mm-hmm. I really hope that the work that we continue to do and grow and reaching out to the bereaved vet students, they can have a sense of belonging within a community mm. instead of feeling. And that's <clears throat> and that's very powerful. And and you know these sorts of things have to start with with a some somewhere with a meal with a with a conversation with a whatever you know and, and and I think that's very very um inspiring that you would um be uh able to to connect people in that way <clears throat> and and uh, as you say if nothing else you know having that shared experience and being able to have a safe safe space to to talk to people so um Liv you 
as I said, I find that very inspiring that you uh, have, you know, uh, been able to to um, to cultivate, you know, that kind of safe space. I would be interested to know who inspires you. Oh, who inspires me? Um, oh, I could get emotional about some people who inspire me. I think I had a really good um boss and a good relationship with her when she took over practice um and so in terms of my like veterinary career my one of my, my boss Naomi she she really inspired me because I sort of always really loved the idea of being like the local vet and I don't think it's embarrassing to say like I like the idea of people wanting to come to see me or to see our practice or and everything and I, I got Naomi was and is really good at that and her clients absolutely loved her and you know that I think watching her for a career and then obviously she did a lot of my training while I was nursing and um, I was absolutely petrified of cats and I would hide in the toilet if there was a blood test and she'd be like oh I'll just wait for you so she got she, she's got me over lots of hurdles um, and she was there for me while mm. I was getting better and with like my endometriosis and she supported me and going to vet school so she's been a really big inspiration and I try to take mm. inspiration from lots of people that I meet and obviously everybody has really different journeys um so yeah um but yeah I'd say in terms of like professionally my career I'd say Naomi would she's been my probably my biggest inspiration and she's a very good vet as well she's a very good vet <laughs> Oh, well, no, no, there, that's a good one, especially, I <laughs> love that. Just in the toilet, I'll just wait for you. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just going to wait for you. Um, I'll just, I'm, you're not really going to get away with this. You can be in the toilet, but I'm going to be here when you get out of the toilet as well. <laughs> so that's good. Okay. Um, and Heidi, the, the same question to you, who, who inspires you? My dad. Hmm. He always inspired me. Um, I remember when I was younger and because I was only diagnosed with autism when I was 20. So I was one of those late diagnosed women who were really misunderstood in life, in mental health services, always searching for why am I not normal? And there were many times I would cry into his arms and he'd go, you don't want to be normal. Please stop saying I want to be normal. And I know that he is with me now and he can finally see and say, I am so glad Heidi is embracing not following society's norms, not being normal. And he always told me to stop caring about what other people think. Um, I'm not a people pleaser, but I think there's always, because I've lacked a lot of confidence in myself and my abilities, it's always been, what grade can I get? Uh, what thing can I do that other people will say is great? So I've done a lot of inside work and really worked on myself and, you know, knowing what my values are in life, where I want to go for me. Um, so he continues to inspire me because he would rock up to parents' evening because um, he was an electrician and a heating engineer in his literally ripped work pants with, like, black shit all over his hands whilst every other people like everyone else was in suits and he'd just sit there like back in the seat um 
yeah and he'd sit there whilst other parents would be like oh my daughter and my son are all going to get a stars and he'd just be like oh that that is great and just smiled and nodded he never had to shout about me he never but he yeah I, I take massive inspiration from that because he always said life was too short and he had his hobbies and yeah he he didn't he lived for himself but cared so much about everyone and everyone would say what an incredible man he was and still is and that inspires me because he doesn't get to live anymore but I do so I will live for myself and I will do what I want and actually start living like I believe in myself because you know you literally get one life so yeah that inspires me yeah and I think yeah and if you if you want to get a goat tattoo then you should absolutely go for all of these things can we see (laughs) I'm sad this is not I can see the 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 goat is peeking out of the back of your top we can see that I've got a butterfly oh yes I've seen your butterfly yeah but what I I didn't mean to demean that very powerful thing you know statement you just made but what I mean is that I think yeah I mean that's it's all about it isn't it I think it's about you know who would have said that you know you would find joy in life through goats and crossfit I mean you do and you you're doing it and you're a testament to that and that's perfect that's perfect for you I'm not that into goats but I'm all about you being into the goats like do you know what I mean like I'm not sure that I'm and I'm certainly I'm certainly not I do not have crossfit capabilities but I'm very but you know what I mean? Like it's it's just wonderful to see people doing what they do, doing them and doing that well and, you know, great, amazing. And I think it's lovely that you kind of it really, it's clear that your dad really lives through that, you know, the, the, you and the stuff that you're doing as well. So no, thank you for for sharing that. Um, Liv, I wondered um, if you would like to share with the listeners what you would like to be when you grow up. Oh no, I can get my Excel spreadsheet out if you like. There's loads of options. Oh God, no, 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 I want, <laughs> no, I don't, please don't do that. Just the first thing that comes to um, <laughs> I want to be a very good GP vet that always has compassion and that creates a good work culture and has lots of friends and makes dogs and cats happy. That's what I want. <laughs> That's a very good answer. Is that on the Excel spreadsheet or is that yeah. is that on there? Yes. <laughs> That's, yeah, it is on there amongst other things. Yeah, like I, yeah, I have like, I don't, you know, it's always interesting when I ask that question because I think, you know, a lot of the things that I want to be when I grow up have got nothing to do with veterinary medicine. Do you know what I mean? Like I, I took my kids ice skating the other day and now I think I'm going to be like an Olympic ice skate champion. <laughs> do it do you know what I mean I think I'm probably past that now um Heidi looking kind of forward you know into your kind of veterinary career do you do you feel hopeful for the veterinary profession or do you feel that actually where there's just a lot of challenging stuff that we're we're struggling to overcome or do you do you feel hopeful being at your stage in your veterinary career you know as you as you move forward what how do you how do you kind of feel about all that I I feel both um and it can massively vary sometimes as 
I guess Liv and I are kind of on a mission with regards to this, but it applies to many, many things as we are all so aware of. And sometimes that can be very powerful and hopeful of, isn't it incredible that we've managed to form this connection and start to do the work? And for example, this is our first podcast of many, I am sure, to spread important messages. Um, But I think when facing personal challenges or stressful times, for example, exam periods or assignments or something it can feel uh quite defeative of oh wow there's a lot to change um so my personal feelings massively vary um I would be lying if I said every day I do want to be a vet there's often times when I've come and had the best workout or been to a competition and thought oh I'm gonna have my crossfit coaching qualification set up my own gym um but i think the wonderful thing about where we are moving towards diversification uh flexible working i think i will be a part-time vet but it doesn't mean that the impact that i'll have within the profession will be any less i'm i'm not going to i don't know lose sight of all of the other things in my life um and just identify as a vet i think that's something that I've learned the past year is I can do veterinary and I can do other things but it doesn't mean that I'm any less of the veterinary things if that makes any sense I don't think the person that's at their desk 24 hours a day just studying is by default the most dedicated person who is going to have the most impact if that's what we're going to measure against um I, I just want to be me and I want to be a human I don't want to lose that <clears throat> that may just be the most i for me personally you know the most uh in you know t- truly honestly in insightful thing that you could say to another veterinary professional really i think you know and, and i think for me that is that really is the nail in the head because you know i i've spent a lot of this a lot of time over the last couple of years almost kind of divorcing myself in some way from that identity when i, I you know i have nothing you know had nothing else other than that scott the vet scott the vet scott the vet you know and i you know I, so i think that is really really important and um and so yes if you can work that out now then i i wish i had done a better job of doing that you know earlier on in my career for sure for sure so that's extremely important and very powerful um, Liv, if you if you had to give one piece of advice to those listening, it doesn't matter what it's about. It could be anything, like you know, lock yourself in a toilet. Don't lock yourself in a toilet. Whatever you think. Um, what um what would that one piece of advice be? Um, I think it would be to take advice from people that are important to you and people that you respect and people that respect you. Um, and people who have lived a life and have some experience. I think that would be my advice. Mm. And do you think you've always taken that advice? No, <laughs> but I think I do now. <laughs> good. You know, well, that's what, I think I do now. That's where most of our learning comes from, though, doesn't it? Yeah, no, that's good. And Heidi, what about you? What would be the one piece of advice that you'd like to share with people? Be weird. It's not embarrassing. Be you. Do what makes you happy show up as yourself all the time uh with your quirks and being different is awesome in whatever aspect of your life or your experience of life is it's normal is boring 
Good. Well, listen, what a joy to chat to both of you today. Um, I feel, uh, I feel hopeful um, that, you know, as I do when I speak to people at kind of different stages in their career, that our profession is in very good hands. And um, I am very excited to, you know, watch uh, your veterinary journeys as they unfold. So, but I'm very, very grateful that you took the time to speak to us today and to be so open and to be so um, honest and and really to share such powerful um, uh, experiences. So thank you very much for speaking to us today. Thank you so much for having us on. Yeah, thank you so much, Scott. So massive thank you to Heidi and Liv for chatting today and just chatting so honestly and openly. Uh, it really was uh, such an honour to to chat with you both. We're going into our clinical segment now. Uh, we're joined in part two of a discussion about the treatment of liver disease in dogs and cats with the wonderful Gemma from Protexin. Last week we spoke about um, a lot of the antioxidant type therapies, so Sammy um, Silamarin um, for the treatment of liver disease and, and this week we talk about some of the other liver disease therapeutics to round off our clinical chat. Just wanted to kind of run through um, some of the other options um, and um, I suppose kind of where you know we, we, we have some uh, products that I think you know Again, it's it comes down to that very very uh, good kind of safety index, and so um, there there can be um, positive effect, and we can be kind of reassured that we're probably not doing any harm. Um, that doesn't go for all um, treatments for liver disease, and we do have to think about um, which ones we select in, in some cases. Um, I wanted to mention vitamin E. Um, vitamin E has also been um, or is also an antioxidant, um, uh, and uh, may have some of these, you know, um, effects as far as sort of preventing against oxidative injury. Um, it seems to be relatively well tolerated, particularly in dogs. But again, you know, there, there's a, a lack of uh, clinical data for for vitamin E specifically. Um, and so, but that may be something that you see included in some of the the liver um, products and supplements that you may um, that you may use. I then wanted to talk about arsidioxicolic acid and 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 Gemma you mentioned this actually I think often we do end up using a combination of of sort of SAMI product plus arsidioxicolic acid um and and for me you know the arsidioxicolic acid um or destillate as it uh, uh, will some people will be familiar with it as um is uh, a choleretic so it it ultimately um will kind of displace more toxic bile potentially um but also has some um anti-inflammatory uh, will have some effects on the immune system might um also have some effects on apoptosis so although we think about um arsidioxicolic acid in cases of of gallbladder uh, problems particularly i certainly wouldn't limit it to that and for me you know the combination of sami uh, and arsidioxicolic acid um, for cases of liver disease, particularly chronic um, hepatitis, I think is a, is a good one. And, and again, a safe product um, 
and one that I would use and, you know, use these two things in combination. Just, Jimmy, you mentioned that there there is also a choleretic effect of Sami as well. Yeah. Yeah, it's something which we've always talked about. And then I actually went and read about it in the last day or so, knowing this was ahead, because I thought, actually, I just need to understand more how it works. But mm-hmm. in part, it's because actually, um, well, there's three proposed mechanisms for it. So one is that... Um, Glutathione is actually the most abundant organic molecule within bile. And so um, if our glutathione levels have fallen, then there's less glutathione level, glutathione being um, expressed into the bile. So supplementing with SAMI, you're increasing the glutathione. Um, and then it works with an osmotic draw. So the glutathione mm. in the bile is drawing water and other solutes into the bile, which then increases biliary flow. And um, so that's one way. And then also SAMI, we mentioned it's got anti-inflammatory properties, we mentioned it's got um, antioxidant properties, but it's also a really important methyl donor um, and involved in membrane production, protein production, DNA production. But um, yeah, so specifically with regards to membrane fluidity and like transport pumps being present and functioning mm-hmm. in cell membranes. So having adequate SAMI is going to alter the um, transport pumps that are present in the bile kind of liquidy, um, and then it's going to help with the bile flow in that regard as well. So there's quite a lot in the literature about it having cholerotic properties. Um, it's used in people in cholestasis of gestation. Oh, um, wow. And actually talking about using ursodeoxycholic acid alongside of um, SAMI, there's a study in mice looking at using them alongside of each other and mm-hmm. um, if after they had bile duct ligation and they found that using the combination gave the most protection against um, inducing chronic liver injury so again i think them you know using the two alongside each other definitely seems mm-hmm. to be benefit from that interesting yeah. really interesting um yeah. The only thing that people often ask about, particularly ursodeoxycholic acid, is you know if there's complete bile duct obstruction, yeah. um, <clears throat> is it a, a contraindication to be using these products? That particularly, um, uh, you know, if there's complete bile duct, bile duct obstruction, I think that for me, um, uh, you know, that that definitely is a cited complication. I would I would be cautious in in those cases. I think that. Um, we're probably over-egging the the effectiveness of of um, mm. ursodeoxycholic acid to to rupture the biliary system, but certainly that is something to be aware of, and yeah. and and um, those cases will usually require much much uh, a much different course of action. So um, the um, in reality, I think the combination, as I said, of ursodeoxycholic acid um, um, in cases of, of biliary disease, particularly things like, you know, the medical management of mucosils, um, although they are not always appropriately medically managed, that, you know, they, they, are, they sometimes have to be, um, if surgery is not always an option. Um, and, and, and then in more chronic uh, hepatitis cases, along with um, other liver support, such as SAMI, I think is, is the place uh, for, 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 for that um, medication. Um, just to kind of finish up, um, I did want to touch on steroids and, and, and actually maybe come back to um, Sammy with this. So ultimately we do find ourselves using corticosteroids for the treatment of, of some cases of liver disease. And this really particularly will come down to cases of, of chronic hepatitis that are thought to potentially have um, a, an immune pathogenesis. That that data is not 100%, but I think we do understand that probably um, many of these chronic hepatitises are 
uh, steroid responsive and will have an immune component uh, to them. Really, um, I would be reserving steroids uh, for cases of liver disease where you have been able to take a biopsy and confirm that there is an inflammatory or, um, you know, um, likely immune pathogenesis. Uh, I understand that's not always possible. And so um, really important if we're ever considering steroids with liver disease to be ruling out um, other um, causes, particularly other infectious uh, uh, causes. Um, but, but some of these cases will be uh, steroid responsive. The data you know, again, it, there is some data to suggest that potentially um, there are beneficial effects to using steroids in cases of chronic hepatitis, particularly those studies were not perfect and some of them are quite a long time ago. Um, but um, so the data is not as good as we would like, but I, I think we uh, are understanding more and more that there there some of these cases will be um, steroid um, responsive. I wonder, Gemma, um, it would seem sensible, not maybe um, just with steroids um, and liver disease, but maybe other medications we're using long term that um, might have a, a negative effect on the liver, things like phenobarbitone. Is there any data to suggest that, that some, of, some of our liver supplements may be beneficial in preventing against some of the damage that, that, that medications might do to the liver? Um, so with regards to steroids in particular, there has been a study looking at using steroids, SAMI alongside of steroids, and actually um, using the SAMI um, was found to reduce oxidative stress in the liver. Um, so actually it is directly reducing that effect of the steroids. It didn't reduce the vacuolar hepatopathy that they got, mm -hmm. um, so the kind of maybe more structural physical changes, but it did um, reduce yeah, the, the measurements in terms of oxidative stress. Um, as far as I'm aware, it's something we often get asked about phenobarbitone, non-steroidals, this kind of thing. There aren't any specific studies, but I think if we just go back to thinking about how it's working and what's happening, it's kind of anything which is increasing, you know, demand on the liver and metabolism in the liver because it's having to break down these drugs. You know, respiration and metabolism itself results in production of free radicals. So there are going to be more free radicals that need antioxidants to quench them. And if the liver is actually being damaged by any of these drugs as well then it's going to potentially lose some of its normal functioning capacity if it's become inflamed or it's scarred or anything like this mm. um, and so then we're going to get reduced production of antioxidants so again we're just tipping that balance off and I think any any disease or toxicity or exposure to drug where we are getting kind of you know an imbalance of more free radicals being produced and less antioxidants mm. being produced then really there's an argument for using um SAMI because it's kind of just going to help to tip things back into a more positive positive balance again and you know those antioxidants are not just needed in the liver so it's not just the liver that we're supporting if the antioxidants are being depleted they're needed in the red blood cells for just respiration and normal functioning of the body mm -hmm. so actually if the body starts to kind of tip towards oxidative stress the whole body could be affected by that not just the liver itself and um, so kind of like we spoke about with regards to the paracetamol toxicity and Heinz bodies and that kind of thing is remembering that just because it's the liver being initially affected actually the knock-on effect can be I guess quite dramatic if we don't support antioxidant mm -hmm. levels in the body yeah. yeah I think that's definitely an argument for them yes yeah definitely um the yeah so I think so steroids you know ultimately may form part of the treatment of our liver disease cases particularly chronic hepatitis um 
in an ideal world, we would do that based on biopsy. Um, I understand that's not always necessary, but we, you know, we, uh, so steroid trials may be appropriate, but really important that we've kind of, as robustly as we can, ruled out um, other causes. Okay, so just to round up, um, we talked about kind of, you know, that the, some liver disease is having an immune pathogenesis, potentially chronic hepatitis cases. If steroids are not cutting it, then there are other um, immunomodulatory drugs that can be considered. Very limited data for that, but potentially the, the, the usual culprits, things like azathioprine and cyclosporin may be used as um, adjunctive agents in, in some cases. Just to, to finish up, I wanted to talk about um, just the management of copper um, in cases of liver disease. And um, you know, if we do find copper accumulation to be significant uh, and again this is usually based on assessment from a biopsy um rather than any other it's very in fact it's almost impossible to assess copper in any other way with liver disease then we may um decide that the copper needs to be dealt with as a primary problem now remember copper can accumulate as a primary problem but it also can accumulate secondary to to liver disease secondary to chronic hepatitis um and so that assessment you need to kind of work with your pathologist to decide what the what the chicken and egg situation is uh, regarding copper. But if you are going to treat it directly, then we would typically use collating agents such as D-penicillamine, um, which is uh, probably the most common way of dealing with copper um, associated hepatopathies in dogs. Um, again, the, the decision making about using D-penicillamine can be can be challenging i think you know speaking to a pathologist and, and working with them to understand the role of copper but also using your signalment you know uh, we would never make a diagnosis based on breed but certainly there are some breeds that are more predisposed to copper associated hepatopathy such as uh, bedlington terriers and, and labrador retrievers so that may be um helpful in 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 these cases other drugs that are kind of associated with um the management of copper, zinc, um, uh, which um, generally we wouldn't use as a primary uh, agent to, to deal with copper. That tends to be something we use, you know, after that initial collation with um, D-penicillamine, uh, we can use zinc to decrease the absorption of copper from the small intestine. Uh, and that can sometimes be used in combination with a, a um, copper restricted diet um, as well. So we tend to do collation first with D-penicillamine um, and then um, maybe later uh, down the line, um, zinc and diet as a more kind of maintenance uh, protocol. I did also, I think, again, with copper associated, it just shows you again, I think, you know, alongside copper associated hepatopathies where we're giving D-penicillamine and, and, and diet and different things, Again, I think there's a role for um, supporting the liver with um, SAMI and, um, you know, Silamarin, et cetera, because I, I think all of these conditions, you know, are, are having or, or will have um, uh, components that will massively benefit from having particularly yeah. that antioxidant effect as well. Yeah, so in I, particular, um, copper as a transition metal itself is pro-oxidant. Oxidation, pro is a pro-oxidant so it mm. increases the production of oxygen radicals if it is exposed and the primary antioxidants in the liver which kind of almost form a little envelope around copper when it's being stored are a-metallothionine but also glutathione is one of mm -hmm. the antioxidants that like physically bundles it up and keeps it away from being oxidized within the liver so if we're getting 
more copper accumulating as part of the liver disease, whether it's a primary or secondary factor, then we're going to need more glutathione to just bundle up away from causing damage in the liver itself. So a massive thank you again to Heidi and Liv for their incredible conversation today and a massive thank you to Gemma and the wonderful team at Protexin uh, for supporting this episode and for their uh, liver disease chat. It leaves me always to say a massive thank you to you for listening and I really hope you can join us next time. Thanks again. Take care. <laughs>